This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, restaurant and bar owners are worried. They don't want a repeat of what happened the day before New Year's Eve when rules suddenly changed on them. This weekend, of course, is Super Bowl Sunday. Current health restrictions are set to expire on Friday, although I don't think anybody should believe that they are not going to be extended. But let's talk about the concerns right now is the head of the Alliance of Beverage Serving Licensees, Jeff Guinard. Jeff, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. How are you this morning? I am good, thank you. But how are bars and restaurants out there? Like, it's, it must be tough to plan for this, cup- yeah. this upcoming weekend. Yeah, it's rough. I mean, the, the first thing to know is that Super Bowl is, is like Christmas in, in the before times for the hospitality industry. It is normally uh, after something like St. Patrick's Day, our second biggest day of the year. Now, obviously, this year is going to be very different. Um, if anyone chooses to go out for Super Bowl, it's, it's not going to be any traditional parties. And you'll notice the volume on the television is lower, uh, a lot more space, a lot more masks and that sort of thing. Um, the challenge, though, is that, um, you know, a lot of folks invest money in preparing their venues for these situations. Same thing on New Year's Eve when we bring in special ingredients for special menus. And the last minute change of hours on New Year's Eve is, is still left a really bad taste in, um, in the lives of a lot of folks in the industry because we were not given sufficient notice about it. Now, that means this time people are uh, gun-shy, right, and expecting almost that something is going to happen. Although, you know, in our conversations with the provincial health officer and her team, I think we've been very clear there's no need to make any additional changes for a Super Bowl. I mean, it's, it's mostly during the day and the early evening, right? It's not like on, uh, right. on New Year's Eve when, when activities went later. And it seems like what Dr. Henry was most concerned about is later in the evening after people have maybe had that extra drink or two, right. they'll, they'll make bad decisions about public health orders. So we're, we're quite nervous about it, though. Um, but I, we're in a situation where, fortunately, uh, we have tons of experience dealing with this now, right? It's not mm-hmm. our first rodeo in the pandemic. And we feel like uh, if you choose to go to a pub or a bar, for uh, to watch uh, to watch Super Bowl that we will we're, we're well equipped to keep you safe. Yeah, it, it's tough though, isn't it, Jeff? Because I think there's a lot more heightened awareness of the rules now too. Where I think you look at people and you go, "Do all those people live in the same household, and are they supposed to be gathering in a bar?" Yeah, so I mean, the heightened awareness about the rules is in some ways a good thing for us. And one of our biggest frustrations throughout this entire pandemic is bars and pubs and restaurants have not been a significant source of viral transmission. It has always been. You know, people having gatherings at home that have caused the problems. Um, so that's that's been quite frustrating for us because the rules are, are aimed at our establishments in a lot of cases when we're doing everything we possibly can to to keep folks safe. Um, and I will say there's a lack of clarity from some folks about who's allowed to dine out, right? So mm-hmm. you're, obviously you're supposed to hang out with your household, uh, but there's no actual order that says you cannot go out to a bar with you know a friend or a colleague. Uh, it is strongly suggested, is how Dr. Hammer puts it. Now, I will say, though, that no bar or restaurant is going to be checking ID to make sure that in the household, it's not, it's not practical. We can't possibly make that determination. We trust our patrons to go out with the folks that they are safe to go out with. 
once you get to a bar or a restaurant or a pub, our job will be to keep you safe while you're there. We'll make sure you're in groups of not more than six, that your tables are two meters apart, mm-hmm. that you're absolutely not allowed to mingle between tables, that you're wearing masks when appropriate. Uh, and if you follow those rules, that uh, there's no reason to not go out. It actually, it is probably safer to go to your neighborhood pub or bar than it is to have a party at home, which is where the reason or there are the source of the transmissions have come from. I mean, that's why Dr. Henry right. had to pass a special order about that. Okay, so has there been any communication then with Dr. Henry's office? Because technically, I know the restrictions are set to expire Friday, but is it not very likely they're just going to be extended? Yeah, I mean, that's, as I understand, an active discussion going on right now. And um, we've had conversations with Dr. Henry's office basically every week. We've had a couple of chats with her in the past month. And I think they're making that determination in the next day or so. So we may get a little bit of a heads up uh, on what to expect for our industry. But whether or not those uh, those restrictions will be lifted, honestly, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, Dr. Henry's doing the best she can looking at current public health data. Right. Uh, but regardless of whether those orders get continued, um, you know, we, we have the protocols in place for the bars and pubs and restaurants to keep folks safe this Super Bowl. And I would much rather you go out to celebrate where there's, you know, someone there to monitor you to ensure you're following the rules that people decide to gather with, you know, half a dozen of their friends and their basement parties. So are you also looking ahead to Valentine's Day? Absolutely. We've, uh, after New Year's Eve, which was, Again, unbelievably frustrating. It cost our industry thousands of dollars, and in some cases, it was money we had we borrowed through government programs or through government grants. But after that, we we immediately went to Dr. Henry's office and gave them a list of every significant date uh, in our industry for the next mm. year uh, to try and get some planning done in advance, right? Because we, we we cannot have another situation like that. And um, yeah, you know, there's other reasons for people to gather. I mean, Family Day is coming up. I mean, Valentine's Day. I mean, these are often occasions in the evening or for brunch, right, where more people want to go out. Our next biggest one, though, is uh, St. Patrick's Day, oh. and uh, that's one that you know people typically would, uh, would party later on in the evening. So obviously, that's not going to happen in the traditional way. So we may want to have additional protocols around that, and Dr. Hamming would look at things like maybe ending the evening a bit earlier and all that. Our industry can adapt to almost anything if we are given sufficient notice, right, because we have to place our orders for for goods, you know, a week or so in advance. And if people are going to be ordering more takeout, they order different things for takeout than they do when they come into the establishment, right? And, yeah. Uh, and uh, and all this is just helping us manage our finances, given that 80% of the hospitality industry is losing money right now. Right? You- I mean, we're, we're on the verge of thousands of restaurants and pubs closing over the next several months if we don't get this right. So uh, we're doing everything we can to work with Dr. Henry and her team. Uh, we're all at the same goal, stopping the spread of the virus. And uh, we just need a bit of notice, right? Right. So we're hoping we'll get that this time. It's so interesting, though, isn't it, Jeff, though, when you compare what's happening here in B.C. to other provinces where things are just, you know, completely shut down. We're kind of, it's a different situation here. It is. And I have to be honest, I'm quite proud of the work that our industry has done to remain open. I mean, when we were closed back at the beginning of the pandemic and could only do takeout uh, and delivery services, our industry worked together with the BC Restaurant Food Service Association, the Craft Brewers Guild, and others to come up with a, a plan of how we could operate safely. We presented that to government, and Dr. Henry's team and WorkSafe BC put in place protocols that are you know, 80% exactly what we had out there. And since then, our industry has followed those protocols so stringently that our hospitality industry has not been a significant source of viral transmission. It's a it's a really good success story that other provinces cannot share in the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're, we're quite proud of that, and I and I think that's proof that we can we can keep folks safe uh, if they follow the rules out there. And 
That's, obviously, I mean, there we've had some bumps along the road, right, with things like some nightclubs earlier on. It's it was hard yeah. for them to operate under the protocols, right? But but that's uh, a big if when you said if they follow the rules. So it's a lot of it is up to people out there, and they have to follow the rules. A hundred percent. And I would stress that you know if you have a favorite neighborhood restaurant or pub and you want them to succeed and be there for you after this pandemic, when you go out, you have to follow the rules. That's the only way we're going to ensure right. that those places are not a source of transmission uh, going forward and that they're going to be able to afford to stay open uh, in, in the current climate. Okay. Um, but uh, as I said, if you're, if you're thinking about having a gathering of some kind on um, for Super Bowl, you're much safer to go out to uh, in your neighborhood local and uh, and celebrate safely um, than you are to have any kind of gathering at home. Okay, Jeff, thanks so much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Have a great day. And good luck. That's Jeff Guinard, Alliance of Beverage Serving Licensees. He's the head of that organization. They are worried, right? They want a heads up from health authorities on this one. And I know there'll be a lot of questions asked about that at today's briefing. So more information to come. This is Mornings with Simi. Hey, let's talk about some really interesting information out of Statistics Canada this morning. Uh, they call it the Portrait of Youth in Canada. It is the first chapter in a new series of information that they are releasing, taking a look at, you know, Canadians between the ages of 15 and 30 in this country, kind of where they're at and with their mental and physical health. So here's some of the interesting stuff they found. So between the ages of 15 and 30, Canadians are less obese more active, and they smoke less than older Canadians. So you would say, well, that's, that's great. That's great for the youth who are between the ages of 15 and 30. Except when you compare them with the same age bracket 20 years ago, they are more obese, less active, and they have a worse diet. So sounds like there's some room for improvement. Uh, let's give you a little more detail now on some of the de- uh, the findings that they had in here. So they said in 2019, about 70% of males and 66% of females in that age group, 15 to 30, reported excellent or very good general health. That's good, but you still you wonder 70%, 66%. That's a lot of people who aren't reporting that too, right? Compared with older Canadians, uh, Canadian youth had lower daily smoking rates and obesity rates, and youth were also more active. Now, the other good news is that Canadian youth daily smoking rates have continuously declined from 26% in 2001 to 8% in 2019. That's pretty good. That's for males. And from 22% to 6% for females. That's a huge difference, right? In 20 years, from 26% of young men that age group smoking to 8% in 2019. However, on the downside, obesity slightly increased during that time. Now, let's talk about mental health here, too, for young people. And again, we're talking about 15 to 20-year-olds uh, uh, here that particular 15 to 30, I should say, 15 to 30-year-old age group. Uh, so 10 years ago, younger Canadians reported more positive mental health than their older counterparts. But in that 10 years, the trend has actually now reversed. Young women are reporting the largest drop in mental health, 
And the pandemic, they say, also had a disproportionate impact on younger people. You can see why, too, right? A lot of their activities are the ones that are being curtailed here. They can't socialize. They can't go out. Job prospects probably seem dimmer to them. It's going to be a tougher economy that they have to make their way in. So you can see why for young people, it seems particularly bleak. Like, I think if you're older, you think, okay, I might have a, I have a job to go back to, or you can you know, figure something out. Younger people can't afford to get into the housing market. You know, the job market is looking now tenuous too. Uh, not surprisingly as well with this report, heavy drinking and cannabis use were higher among youth. And it appears that rates of heavy drinking though are, are declining among young men. But, and there's always a but, it seems like, right? Young women appear to be drinking more. It seems like also uh, Caucasian Canadians almost twice as likely to drink heavily and use cannabis than visible minorities. Now, all of this comes from a Statistics Canada survey out this morning. It's part of a series that they're doing called Portrait of Youth in Canada, looking at Canadians between the ages of 15 and 30. And while there are some good news in there, it sounds like it could be better health-wise, less obese, more active, smoke less than older age groups. But not when you compare them to 20 years ago. 20 years ago, people between the ages of 15 and 30 were in better shape, so they were less obese, uh, so, and they were actually better off health-wise than this group now. So interesting stuff in there for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. With the challenges we currently face with COVID-19, both here at home and abroad, we all agree that now is just not the time to be flying. It's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on Friday. You heard him right here on the show talking about these new travel restrictions. And according to the Federal Transportation Minister, Omar Al-Gabra, those new restrictions could take effect as early as Thursday. Now, there's plenty of people, lots of people like in academia as well, who have been advocating for travel restrictions for quite a while. Joining us now is Kelly Lee, Canada Research Chair in Global Health Governance at Simon Fraser University. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I know you've been advocating for travel restrictions. So from what you've heard from the federal government, is what they're doing enough? Yes, we've been advocating stricter restrictions at the moment because of these new variants. They're welcome. I mean, we were anxiously waiting for this announcement on Friday. And there's some things that we, you know, we're really hoping that the prime minister would implement. He has implemented However, they don't quite go strong enough. And there's, you know, it's all about the exemptions. It's all about the details. Um, It sounded welcoming at first. um, But I think, you know, people can see that they are uh, choices that have been made on these new measures. So things like selecting the the destinations and cancelling selected flights to those destinations uh, makes a little, it makes uh, no sense if people are traveling um, uh, to other places and these new variants are circulating globally. So it, it the selected targeting of different destinations um, doesn't uh, make sense in terms of our research. Right. Uh, I was wondering that as well, because they picked these destinations, Caribbean and Mexico. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of Canadians who go to Hawaii and to Florida and they're not included. 
That's right, especially on the West Coast. Uh, there are different holiday destinations. Now, the government has said, well, they've selected the you know the most popular destinations, probably for the East Coast people, you know, going to certain places. But yes, Hawaii, Arizona, even even any of the U.S. Um, destinations are not on there. But just selecting a country and saying, you know, that's where the the risk is, doesn't make sense. It's a global pandemic. We know these new variants are circulating. There's at least five of them out there. And they've already spread around the world. So it doesn't make any sense to just select. Now, they said, okay, they'll stop everyone now from maybe Thursday and and screen them with tests and quarantine. So it doesn't matter where you come from. um, You you still have to go through that sort of um, process. But the issue there is that, um, you know, I'm not clear, actually, is it essential and non-essential travelers? The PM said all travelers. And then the transport minister said yesterday, only non-essential. So I, I'm trying to get clarification on that. Like, who is actually having to go through these new measures um, and how tight they will be? I get confused by that as well, because technically we're not supposed to have non-essential travel, right? Because people aren't supposed to be doing that. They're not supposed to, but we know they are. Um, and we're, certainly um, these are Canadians that are going out because non-Canadians, non-residents are, are not supposed to be coming in. Um, so it is Canadians going out, and and we know, right? That we do know that there are still small um, proportion of people who who are going out, and they're they're being caught out this week, I suppose. But uh, it it's all comes down to the definitions. As soon as you create exemptions, what is essential, what is non essential, you're letting in potential risk. So every time you create these exceptions, um, you're kind of putting holes in your policy. So it, if we look at other countries that have put in these sorts of measures. They have made very few exemptions. Everybody right. must go through and, you know, you can't have some special cases. I know people always compare it to uh, Australia and, and New Zealand. And then they say, well, that's in, those are islands. That's different. They can lock that down. But Canada, can we do something similar here? Well, we're looking into that. I've heard that argument from both the premier, you know, we can't do it here in B.C., and then the prime minister saying, you know, we've, our country is too big and we have land, air and sea arrivals. It is true that our geography is challenging. Um, but, you know, if we're going to learn lessons from this pandemic, we've got to look at, could we have done it? And, and of course, no country had done that before. So um, Australia is not a small country. It has states, has long internal borders, as well as um, external borders. And, and it managed to do it very quickly. So, you know, rather than throwing it out the window, let's see if it is possible. It's certainly logistically challenging and probably very expensive. But the the alternative is really to have an ongoing level of virus in this country and these threats of new variants coming in. And actually, that impact may be even bigger. Right. So as you're saying, we're trying to mitigate, keep the cases low, but like low enough to let people continue on doing some of the things that they're used to. Versus other countries which go, they believe in like getting to zero. Is that unrealistic for Canada? Yeah, that's the big debate. Um, You know, we're still looking at that. Uh, Some argue certainly that we could have done that and we should do that because creating this perimeter, this sort of safe zone where Canada has very secure borders and screens everyone tightly, whoever comes in definitely doesn't have the virus or would be quarantined and then not pose a, a, a risk. So we we inside that perimeter would be safe and we could carry on our daily lives. Um, I'm not sure if we can go back to that yet. I'm still looking at that, but um, that certainly was an option early on. And especially with these new variants, it's a, it's a new, almost a new outbreak. We should treat it as such. So we, sh- we do need to keep that 
um, those variants out. And going for zero new variants would be a, a certainly a, a, a doable target, but we do need to tighten up the restrictions first. Right, but what you're saying is that there's still some confusion over these travel restrictions. There's a lot of confusion. I mean, as soon as you hear an announcement, you know, I'm trying to pick it apart and say, okay, you know, what do they mean and, and what's the timing and who, who goes under these restrictions and so on. It, it's incredibly um, confusing for, I imagine, for the public as well. And, yeah. You know, for those of sitting in Mexico at the moment trying to figure out what they can do and what they can't do um, is it, it, really, you know, um, <laughs> a challenge. But I think the main thing, you know, if they had come in with a, a very clear policy, which is 14 days quarantine mandatory, um, which is what Australia does in hotels, uh, paid for by the traveler, that's incredibly straightforward. Um, there's no exceptions. You can't go home and then, you know, wander around the community because it's still an honor system after those three days. Yeah. And, um, you know, those, those sorts of like, can you do this? Can you do that? It, it's still very... Yeah, it's unclear, and I'm going to have to keep watching as well and see what the the minister says. Just like all of us. Kelly, thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, as we've been talking about, there are these new travel restrictions that are going to come into effect this week. And that means that there will be some changes. For instance, international travelers landing in Toronto at Pearson will be tested for COVID-19 starting today. So Global News reporter Marianne DeMann is at Pearson this morning, checking it all out. She joins us now. Hi, thanks for being here. Hi, good morning. So what kind of changes are noticeable there this morning? Um, Well, there's the obvious change to the airport in that it is a ghost town in between the few flights that are landing at Pearson Airport. But once the arrivals, or rather the passengers arrive, they are greeted by staff members who are basically informing them about these tests. As of right now, it's still voluntary under a pilot project that's been running at Pearson Airport since the beginning of January. But starting at noon today, it'll become mandatory. So for the passengers who are arriving this morning, there was a flight from Port of Spain this morning. The staff members were letting them know that As of right now, it's still voluntary. If you want to do it, you go over there, you register on a tablet, and then you continue on to these um, different cubicles that are located elsewhere in the terminal, and then they get their test, and then they go home where they're supposed to uh, quarantine for 14 days. But it'll be similar uh, by noon once it's mandatory in that there won't be more cubicles or more staff members. It'll just be mandatory. And if they refuse to get the test, they'll face a $750 fine. Oh, okay. Interesting then. So they put that in place, but what's in place then, Marianne, to make sure they quarantine? So right now, as we know, once the federal government's uh, plan is in place, they'll have to stay at an approved designated hotel where they're going to have to stay on their own dime until they get their uh, test results back. For this plan with the province, it's basically show a plan that proves that you will be quarantining for 14 days, go home or wherever you're planning to stay for 14 days and don't leave. But nothing about staying in a particular location like a designated hotel, that's not really what's in place right now under 
this plan that the province has put in place. Um, that'll likely just be whenever the federal government's plan comes in place. So it's almost like an honor system right now, yeah. which has been the case uh, since this pandemic began. And as we know, it's not always uh, what people are doing, what they're telling uh, the officials at the uh, airport is not necessarily what's happening, especially since family members are picking them up at the airport. And yeah. one of the workers was telling me just last week that, you know, sometimes they're seeing people hugging and even kissing each other oh. after they get off the flight. So You've got to be kidding me. That, right. Uh, so um, even if you have that uh, quarantine plan in place, what's happening in between the time you get to the airport and the time you get to that spot. Geez, you would think that bylaw officers could just park themselves in the arrival zone, right? And just check that whole thing out. But, <laughs> but I guess not. So the, the tests that they're doing then, Marianne, are these rapid tests? And like, how quickly will people get the results? Yeah, these are rapid tests. And they uh, when they register, they give all their information and they would get the results in a day or two. The big thing that they're trying to detect is not only COVID-19, but as we're also learning about these COVID-19 variants, because we know that the UK variant, which was confirmed last month, was because of international travel. And then since then, 51 cases of the variant have been confirmed in the province. So that's what they're trying to detect, because as we know, they're also much more contagious, possibly even more deadly. And here in Ontario, it's already been behind an outbreak at a long-term care home where more than 40 residents have already died. So that's why the Premier was really pushing to not wait for the federal program to be put in place to start Mm -hmm. it immediately today. Um, But yeah, it would be a rapid test. The results would come in quickly. And then once they figure out if you're infected or if you're carrying the variant, you would absolutely have to quarantine for 14 days but you do raise a good point about how do you then enforce that quarantine which has been the question since the start of this pandemic sure has marianne thank you so much for your time this morning you're welcome appreciate that marianne demand who's a global news reporter in toronto she is at pearson airport this morning where they are now starting testing covid19 testing so nine o'clock our time noon in toronto That is when they are going to start making international travelers landing at Pearson get tested for COVID-19. But the drop-off is still, where is the enforcement of the quarantine? That's something that I know the Prime Minister is going to get asked about again today, about what what is the plan for that? How are you going to make that happen? How do you force people to go to a hotel and make sure that they are going to stay quarantined? I mean, they've managed to do it in other countries. The city of Perth we were talking about today in Australia uh, actually is locking down for five days because they had one case of COVID-19, but... It was a security guard at one of the quarantine hotels that travelers have to stay at, so they're not taking any chances with that at all. This is Mornings with Simi. Hey, we're going to be talking to one of the levies a little bit later, Rob Levy, as a matter of fact, in our eight o'clock hour, because this whole, remember Robin Hood, GameStop, that whole situation last week, it's on again today, except this time, those same traders have targeted the price of silver. So we're going to talk about what's going on with that coming up. Right now, though, let's talk about the spread of COVID-19 variants. That was probably the primary consideration when the federal government announced new travel restrictions on Friday. And now this morning, we're hearing that there may be a case of exposure to that variant at a high school in Maple Ridge. Experts have said it's just a matter of time before most of our cases are made up of these variants. And that is a scary thought considering how contagious this is. And where else is this a problem? In Denmark. Joining us now is Shane Woodford, freelancer in Denmark, former CKNW reporter. Morning, Shane. 
Good morning, Sammy. Kicking myself for not investing in silver. I went with Blockbuster. Big it's mistake. too late. Once it's in the news, it's too late, Shane. <laughs> right? It's once once you start yeah. hearing about it, it's too late to get on that bandwagon. I can't emphasize that enough to people who were thinking the yeah. same thing this morning. Um, and, and quite frankly, Sammy, that's a lot like the the COVID variant, the UK, the South African, and the Brazilian P1. Once you have one in the system, it's yeah. too late. That is so true because it's been probably circulating a little bit there. What's it like in Denmark right now? We got our first case of the UK COVID variant sort of towards the end of December. And in about the five or six weeks since, it has gone from about a 2% share of all positives tests. So we haven't had an update this week. But last week, it was up to 12.7%. Uh, cases, confirmed cases of the UK COVID variant here uh, doubled week to week over the last two weeks. Um, they're now, Denmark is now uh, sequencing every single positive test result they're having to see if the variant is at play in order to use, you know, contact tracing, isolating, quarantining, that kind of thing to try and keep the numbers down. But the fear here to me is we're, we're in a lockdown. It was just extended uh, until February 28th. It's pretty severe. Um, all, only essential stores are open, two-meter social distancing, masks everywhere. Only one person from a household can go into a grocery store, that kind of thing. And we're seeing the infections and that kind of stuff go down, which is great. I mean, if they were going up, we'd really be in trouble. But the government is saying, hey, listen, we're doing this because, and they, they push out the modeling saying, you know, we need to get it down as low as possible because if we ever do gradually reopen, we are going to see... Um, an exponential increase in infections because the UK COVID variant here is going to be the dominant strain uh, at the earliest in a couple of weeks, at the latest by about mid-March. So uh, they're saying if they let those numbers go up, we could see an excess of eight to 10,000 infections a day inside Ooh. of six weeks after that point. Wow. And that is, you know, considering that we've talked to you extensively during the pandemic and Denmark for a while there was doing really well. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, it's this thing about letting your foot off the gas pedal and getting a little complacent. And then you have something like this new variant, which is much, much more contagious. I think I told you before here in Denmark, they estimated it between uh, 50 and 72% more contagious than the regular strain of COVID, which is, I mean, COVID itself, it, it goes through the uh, population like wildfire. So uh, we're talking like a turbocharged wildfire, these new UK COVID variants, the South African variants, and then the one out of Brazil, it may be even more concerning than that. Um, and so we saw numbers go up and we've seen it in the UK semi where they just, they went through the roof. The hospital system there was pushed to the precipice. Uh, the biggest example right now here in Europe is Portugal, which is probably the closest situation at this particular moment to the horror show that we saw play out in Italy in the spring. Uh, Portugal's health care system is literally at the breaking point over the weekend reports out of there saying they had just seven ICU beds. They're now shipping corona patients in Portugal to Austria, Germany Oof. sending in uh, medical help, equipment, staff, that kind of thing. But Portugal is in a bad, bad place, and that is almost directly due to the UK COVID variant. And what about the vaccine situation in Denmark? Well, it's very similar to what you guys are experiencing. We had a very promising start here in Denmark. We were leading the EU in vaccine administrations. Um, there was a lot of talk about all the contracts they had, the number of vaccines that they had under lockdown and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then what happened is, um, and you guys experienced this as well, Pfizer said, oh, we're going we're gonna to try and upgrade our facility over in Belgium. And everyone's going to have to suffer for that. And so we're now way short on Pfizer vaccine doses that we were promised. And then 
We had Moderna come out in the EU. I'm not sure what their situation over there is, but here in the EU, Moderna has come out now and said, oh, yeah, we too cannot deliver nearly as much as initially promised. We're having some issues getting ramped up. And the EU got really desperate at that point because the wheels were coming off a really promising vaccination start. And then last week, AstraZeneca, uh, which was approved for use on Friday, but just prior to that even, uh, told the EU, listen, even if we get approved, we cannot deliver anywhere near the initial doses of vaccinations that we promised. And the EU was really kind of banking on that to kind of reinvigorate a flagging vaccination system. So uh, here in Denmark, we've gone from really going uh, to the wall, and now we are seeing very, very few first brand new doses, and we're using what vaccines we have to get the second doses right. in before they expire. Oof, bad situation. All right, Shane, thank you. Always a pleasure, Simi. Stay safe. This is Mornings with Simi. So last week, all the talk was about GameStop and its stock and what was happening with it. It was a group of investors online, day traders, who decided to just bet against the major hedge funds. And that confusion that resulted was like billions of dollars in losses. And, you know, some people made some money, but essentially it was craziness. Well, now sounds like perhaps that same group of traders is at it again. Uh, let's find out more about that. Joining us is Rob Levy, our CKNW business analyst. Good morning, Rob. Hey, good morning, Sammy. Nice to talk to you. Well, what's going on this morning in particular with silver? Well, it, it, it seems to be the latest target of the, this Wall Street bets crowd. The question is how much legs it has to it. But it, it's been an absolute rush, and the chatter has been to buy physical or silver in all forms, paper uh, in the market. You can do it through ETFs or you can buy the mining companies. And, and you're just seeing huge volume in some of these names and you're seeing huge volatility in these stocks to the upside because like a herd, a, a mobilized herd of these in the millions of investors that all sort of work together, they're going after particular stocks or particular asset classes. So silver being the latest target. Okay, now is this something that was known? Like, did they announce this like they did with GameStop or what's been going on? Exactly. Last Wednesday was when the chatter began to come around the silver market. And we saw the first initial moves last Wednesday. Some of the weed and precious metals, First Majestic, even some companies that are based here in Vancouver saw big big moves, double-digit moves in their share prices. And, you know, it's been this rush. There's reports in the United States and even in Canada where bullion dealers that have the physical, everybody's rushing to buy it because they think they want to get their hands on it. Um, you That's know, kind of scary, I, though, Rob, though, isn't it? Like all of a sudden people think they're going to they might have missed the ride last week and now they want to get in on the ride this week. Like that sounds like dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. And, and it's one way I think people have to assess their risk before they jump into these kind of these kind of trades or transactions. I, I, I talk to people about this kind of stuff all the time. And it's, you know, especially after you've seen the move, you, you know, it, when you're sort of joining the herd, it, it's, it's a completely a risk equation and you have to think about it for yourself. Okay. Realize what I'm doing here is I'm gambling. And it, you know, the, these market and asset classes in, in every different one, they all trade in sort of the same way, whether we're talking about the way cryptocurrencies have been trading or GameStop over the past couple of weeks, uh, you're predicting consumer behavior. And, and as you sort of hinted there with GameStop in your intro, who's going to be the last person holding the bag when no one wants to hold this investment anymore and people decide to start selling? Um, you know, the caveat to add with silver is they're trying to do what they did to GameStop, what people talked about as a short squeeze. So uh, there were big hedge funds that were short the stock 
And if you move the price up high enough, you're forcing them to take a loss. And then they, in fact, have to buy and add to this buying behavior. Uh, I, I would caution that some of the information that's going around about the silver market it isn't exactly true. And it's based more on conspiracy theory than actual fact. Because uh, the ability to do a short squeeze in the silver market, I don't think is there. But what we are seeing is the momentum buying where everybody's rushing into the same trade. Right. That makes me very apprehensive, right? Because as I joked about earlier on the show, if you're hearing about it on the news and then decide you're going to get into it, it's probably too late for you to make any money. <laughs> I think you're right. Because, I mean, I got I got the most calls in my uh, of the week last week regarding talking about GameStop on media, and I figured, okay, so this might be the time where the party's over for GameStop. So I, the one thing, though, it's the same with, you know, we saw it in the cryptocurrencies, is you're predicting consumer behavior. And look, if anybody knew how to do that, uh, you'd be absolutely rich, because then you'd know when to trade to the upside and when you could get out of the uh, of the trade also. Uh, but the, the reality is there's a little bit of luck involved to do with that also. Okay. So your advice then to people, and I'm sure you got a lot of phone calls, as you said there, right? So what do you tell people? Well, I, look, I, I, I don't give advice because I'm not an investment analyst, but you know, I'm a keen observer of the market. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm in the physical precious metals business. I sell this stuff. I've seen the activity that's been taking place all weekend and, and following the, you know, the Reddit blogs and, and all the chatter out there. Is, is know that you're going into something with more risk right now, and, and maybe it, t- it leads you to reassess the decisions you're making. But you know, as always, investments. You talk to an investment advisor. You gotta you gotta talk to the professionals. That's that's not what I do. Okay, but thank you for telling us the story about that, Rob. Thank you. Thanks, Jimmy. Rob Levy, CKNW Business Analyst, talking about what's going on this morning in the markets. There's a lot of kind of fallout and concern over what happened last week, of course, with the GameStop stocks. Like, was that going to be the end of it? Sounds like there's still something going on there. But I will reiterate to people, if you're hearing about it in the news and think it's a good time to invest, I would say no. It probably is not at that point. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about bats. Yes, bats, because you may have noticed some unusual nighttime activity in the skies this winter, and usually we don't see them outside at this time of year. So it turns out if you have seen them, well, they may be suffering from a condition that has been observed south of us in Washington State. So let's talk to Linger Baker about that, the Wildlife Rescue Association of BC's co-executive director. Linda, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So normally you're telling me that bats wouldn't be out and about at this time of year? Normally, no. They do hibernate hibernate in the winter. Um, On occasion, they will come out and uh, on warm uh, winter days or nights and eat insects if they're around or have a drink of water. But usually they stay in hibernation all winter long. Okay, so where have some people seen them then this winter? Um, Around BC, uh, the BC Bat Program is um, recording all the sightings and uh, they've reported an increase in bat sightings. And what does that mean then if we're seeing them? That's not good news, right? No, it could mean that they are suffering from white nose syndrome and that's what we're really afraid of. Uh, It's been going um, through North America in the last uh, 15 years and um, it's been detected in uh, Washington State. So we're very concerned it will show up in BC uh, very soon as well. Um, and that uh, white nose syndrome is um, a fungal disease, and it makes them uh, wake up in the winter. And um, 
and then become active in the winter, but there's not a lot of food for them around uh, because they eat insects. So they use all their fat stores very quickly, and then they, uh, they just go downhill from there. Okay, so how common is this right now? Um, it hasn't been detected in BC yet. So we are working with uh, the government actually to uh, take swabs of any bats that we do get in care because we do get them on a regular basis uh, to make sure um, we notify the community when it happens. Okay, so then if people do see this at nighttime, um, what, what should they do? Um, so, yeah, monitor what's happening with the bats. If, if you see unusual behavior, so if, if a bat is difficulty flying or is on the ground, um, that could be uh, a, a sign of disease. So you can call the Wildlife Rescue Helpline or you can call the BC Bat Program and, um, and then we will take further action. Are people like learning more and more about bats, Linda? Because really, people think of them as something spooky, don't they? Yeah, they don't have a good rap sometimes, but they're, they're really amazing creatures. You know, they're the only flying mammal. Uh, they eat thousands of insects, which, you know, I'm really happy about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and all those, you know, creepy stories of them flying in your hair, it's really not true. They, uh, they use echolocation, so they, they have a good uh, sense of where they're going. So it sounds to me like you know of a lot of misperceptions then about bats. Yeah, yeah. What are some exactly. of the other ones? Um, well, that they will bite you and they, uh, um, they don't, um, you know, they don't try to bite you uh, on purpose. <laughs> um, you know, they might bite you if, uh, if there is a bat on the ground that is sick and you try to help it. So you do want to make sure you protect yourself. Never touch a bat with your bare hands. Always use uh, thick gloves or get advice first. Um, it is true that they can carry rabies, like half, uh, it's estimated that half percent of the total bat population carries rabies. So uh, that's definitely something to, to you know, yeah. be aware of. Um, but otherwise... Um, Where's the most common places to find bat colonies, though? Like, I, they're everywhere, aren't they? They are everywhere. Yeah, I can, I can see them, you know, um, come out at night in the summer um, in urban areas. So... Um, in BC, they can roost in trees or in old, like, barns, buildings, uh, mines, bridges, and uh, rock uh, crevices. So mainly then, if you, if you, maybe we just haven't looked. Like, if somebody says, oh, I, didn't, we, we don't, I haven't seen any bats before, you probably haven't looked close enough. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Like, the more you become aware that they can come out, the more you might see them. So uh, in the summertime, at dusk, uh, you know, you can uh, you can start to see them and then, yeah, look out for them in the winter, too, um, in case they do show up. Right. Is the bat population healthy, though, overall, like in terms of numbers? No, they're not. It's not healthy. So that's why we're, we're focused on them to try to, to keep the populations up. Um, there's about 16 species in the in BC and, and half of them are not doing so great. So um, definitely we want to we want to help the population. Okay, so then how do we do that? Tell us again, Linda, how can we help? <laughs> well, make sure, um, you know, you you monitor for bat sightings um, and if you see a bat, see what it does and report it. So the BC Bat Bro Program wants to know all the bat activity during the winter. So if you see one or you think you see one, call the BC Bat Program and, um, and 
tell them about the behavior of the bat. Right. If it's grounded and, and difficulty flying and you think it's injured or sick, call the wildlife rescue and we can help you as well. Okay, but above all, don't try to pick it up. Exactly, yeah. Okay, don't good. pick it up with your bare hands and get advice. Ooh, good adv- good, that's good advice. Thank you for that, Linda. <laughs> No problem. Thank you. Have a good day. That's Sunday Baker, who's the co-executive director of the Wildlife Rescue Association of BC. They are worried about the bat population. And they're saying if you see them in the sky right now, you shouldn't be because they should be hibernating, which means they might have a condition that they had been observing in the United States. They wouldn't want them to have that because if they wake up out of hibernation, that's uh, bad for the population because they won't have enough food and they'll die off. So check out the BC Bat Program. It's all you have to do to Google that and you'll get all the information right there.